Hey, good morning. Um, I just want to take a quick step back, look back, and then we'll look forward. But looking back, we spent uh, some time here this fall going through a series called One Anothering, where we looked at all these statements in the New Testament about what the church is to look like. And it was command after command that to do things that really we ought to do, love one another and pray for one another, and on and on it went. And uh, we're just really encouraged by, by what we've been hearing. You, Sometimes, sometimes it's a really priv- most of the time it's a real privilege to sit where I sit or stand where I stand. Um, just get to hear a lot of what God's doing among us, and and uh, re- we really want to work hard at making sure that we relay a lot of that to you. Sometimes it feels like we just go on Sundays and what's really happening. And uh, I just want to assure you and encourage you that God is working so mightily around here. And we're really encouraged about the, the work the life groups were doing in the One Anothering series and the discussions they were having, the ways that they were trying to apply this to each other. We heard a lot of just really wonderful feedback about that. And, and just this morning I was talking with a, a couple who are, are new here and, and they were just sharing what, what a what a warm, hospitable place they find Central to be. That's really God's grace. I'm really thankful for that, that, that God is a, a, a working in and through you to, to minister um, to people in Chilliwack. It's really encouraging. Just encouraged that God has, uh, people have come to Christ this year. Um, we've been able to really impact our community in a couple of different ways. Agassiz Campus continues to grow. In fact, was it last Sunday, two Sundays ago? Help me out here. We had a big Agassiz, uh, really called Family Fun Night, two Sundays ago. Over 300 people from the community showed up. And uh, it was just a really wonderful uh, time that we could just essentially just share the love of Jesus. Like just, it was just, we want to love our community. And, and they just went all out. And people came, people felt loved, amazing connections were made. Uh, there was a gentleman there who said, you guys are at church right here? We live like right behind you. I didn't know there was a church here. We're going to come. He's got like three teenagers, and they're all starting to come. It's like really, we're just really thankful that God is giving us opportunity to just love and bless and meet needs and, and walk with each other in faith. So I'm really encouraged. I, I pass that on to you and say thank you um, for loving Jesus, loving your church, discovering and being willing to grow at what it looks like to, to love one another and be church together. So that's a look back at this fall. Just really loved uh, going there with you. Now we're kind of looking ahead, and we're in the midst of a – uh, the second week in an Advent series we're calling Longing for Jesus. And um, when we talk about longing for Jesus, we're doing two things. We're, we're looking back at those who were, this is a bad way of saying it, we're looking back at those who were looking forward, <laughs> those who were anticipating Jesus coming, that Jesus was going to come. The Old Testament, throughout, there's this anticipation, there's this longing for, sincerely, that the Messiah would come, that a Savior would come, a Rescuer, the Anointed One that's promised. And so we saw it last week from the garden on. We'll talk a little bit more about that, this need, this longing for Jesus to come. And so we jump into that and we look at how they anticipated and we learn something of, of this anticipation, both of anticipating Christmas, the significance of Jesus coming, and we as Christians, we look back at that anticipation. We're also looking forward to anticipating him coming again. And so we're in this place where we're looking forward and saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Just, the, just as the way the book of Revelation concludes, we say that as well. So that's where we're going. All the while, we're tapping into this concept of longing because they longed for Jesus. There was just this in their hearts. They knew they needed remedy. They needed saving. They needed a savior. And we actually look at it and say, yeah, and so do we. 
We long for Jesus. Some of us don't really know it. We have these longings in our hearts, this, this angst or this yearning. We, we, we long for things to satisfy our hearts. And so we too, just as they anticipated, just carry that message on and say, Jesus satisfies those longings. Just as Christmas, the coming of Christ, satisfied the longings of those of old, we too recognize and believe that Jesus deeply satisfies the longings in our hearts. So that's where we're going this morning. We looked at this garden scene in Genesis 3 last week. We're going to um, jump quite a few chapters to Genesis 17. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, Genesis chapter 17. I'll read out of the ESV. That's what will be on the screen as well. But feel free to follow along, and, uh, whatever, and, and, and an app or a Bible or look to the screen. Um, let me read it and we'll, we'll dive right in. Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, he has Alfred Ham beat by three years. We were celebrating Alfred Ham's 96th birthday in the first service. And then I essentially mocked him and said, Abram was 99. So he beat you. Take the spotlight off you. Anyways, <laughs> when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram did what most people do in the Bible when they encounter God, fell on his face. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That is God's word. Now, if you have a bulletin, we, we do outlines here. I've got a couple points I want to share with you. I'll give them to you now, and we'll work our way through. The first one's this, and I'll show you how it connects to the text in a moment. But the first one is that Jesus satisfies our longings for identity. And Jesus does that. Jesus satisfies our longing for identity. And secondly, Jesus is the source of the joy we all long for. Jesus satisfies our longing for identity, and Jesus is the source of the joy we all long for. Now, I forgot to mention one thing as I uh, kind of open things up here this morning, and that is that we're, we're tracking this whole sermon series in a guide called an Advent Guide. We have it kind of strewn throughout the, the, the church building. would love for you to pick this up. It's a weekly devotional, tracks with what we're doing here um, there's also a family devotional component on a weekly basis, um, supplemental reading that can be every day really leading up to Christmas. You can uh, read from this and just really uh, recommend it to you. We want to help you anticipate and long for Christmas rightly, and that's just a tool we're using to do that. So look, there's this uh, scenario that happened. Let's talk last week and get into this first point here. Last week in the garden, we recognized that that 
Um, Adam and Eve were deceived by a serpent. We see in Revelation 12 and other places like Romans 16 that this serpent wasn't simply a snake or something. It was Satan himself um, tempting them. And in the garden, he tempted them um, and they um, followed suit. They did what he told them, uh, what he told them they thought he thought they should do, which was to eat from this forbidden fruit, this one tree in the garden that they shouldn't eat from. Um, And they went and they did that. God came to judge them and starts with the serpent. And what we discovered was that in the very first instance of judgment in the world, the curse to the serpent, God was also issuing promise that one would come who would crush the head of that serpent, the deceiver, and make things right. That was, uh, it's, it's deeply profound. Now we pick it up in Genesis chapter 17, um, where God comes and um, really makes a promise to Abraham. Um, but I want to talk about identity for a minute and look back at Adam and Eve. Here's what happened with Adam and Eve. God created them in his image as these image bearers, and he gave them, a, in light of who they were and who God declared that they were, God gave them a task that they were to um, really rule over the creation. They were to tend to it and care for it and, um, and uh, be over it. Then the serpent comes along and gives them a different message. He says, no, 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 no. Like, don't just do what God says. Don't just follow what he's telling you to do. Eat from that fruit you're not supposed to because then you won't just like walk with God and be with God and live in light of what God's told you to do, but you'll be like God. And you'll have fuller understanding and you go your own way. That was the lie. That was the, the, the word that, they, that Satan gave them. And they decided to believe Satan rather than God. And so they gave themselves to some work. And the work they gave themselves to was eating from a tree that they were not supposed to. And so... The result, though, they found that when they followed a different word, when they gave themselves to different work than God had ordained for them, the result wasn't better as they had hoped or imagined or that, this, that Satan has de- had deceived them with. It was actually far worse. It led to brokenness and despair. And in fact, they gave themselves to more work where they sewed fig leaves together and tried to cover themselves. But even that work didn't suffice. They were, they were ashamed. And so then they went and hid um, So the work they gave themselves to and the word they believed in were absolutely wrong and made things much worse. Now, this actually has been the process by which humanity has sought an identity ever since. So they were hoping to define it and fulfill it by the work of uh, their hands, and we do the same. We, We like to define our identity by what we do. But now Abraham comes along in chapter 17. He, we see in chapter 12 that he's, he's no one particularly great. It's just that God in his grace um, decides that he will make a promise to Abraham. And this promise is significant. Abraham is significant. In fact, the book of Genesis is going rapidly fast over a long period of time. And then it gets to Abraham and it just slows right down. And chapter after chapter after chapter is actually really focusing in on Abraham and God's promise to him. This big chunk of Genesis really is is focused in on Abraham and then his descendants. So it's very significant. And in fact, maybe some of you had learned the song, um, uh, Father Abraham. You have many sons. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's praise the Lord or something like that. Horrific song. Terrible song. But it reveals the significance that Abraham has in our lives. He is this father of nations, this father um, 
of ours. And so we, we, it's very significant. And there's a lot that we can learn from Abraham, a lot. And so I just want to zero in on a couple of areas. And I, I, I see a couple jump out here in Genesis chapter 17 where God reiterates this promise he's making to Abraham to make him great. And um, so he calls Abram. And do you notice what happens when we talk about identity? What happens here? Uh, He was promising to bless him and bless all peoples of the earth through him. Look at verse 4. God said to him, Behold my covenants with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. What he's saying is your, your name shall no longer be Abram, which means exalted father, but it shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For I have made you, look at what God says, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You know what's so strange about that? That Abraham and Sarah haven't had a single child together yet. And he's like 99 years old. And his name to this point is Abram. Can you imagine like how people, like people would have snickered at Abraham at this point. He's 99 years old and they're like, hey, what's your name? He's like, Abram, exalted father. Oh, what kind of fam- Wow, you must have a huge. You must be really blessed. What kind of family do you have? Ah, I have no kids. But your exalted father, you're 99 years old. God comes along at that point, which it just seems ludicrous, right? And He comes along and says, "No, you know what? I'm changing your name from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. I'm just going to blow this thing wide open." God says, "And that's who you are." And He says, "I have made you the father." of a multitude of nations. I, I love that. And this is, this is what God does. So, so he has not had any children with his wife, Sarah, but he has been given this promise like years and years earlier, and nothing's happened. But God comes again and says, you know what? This is who you are. You're, you are a blessed father of a multitude of nations. God declares it. And you know what, what keeps getting picked up in the New Testament? Like Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 11, they all pick up on the story of Abraham. And you know what they keep saying about him? This man of faith. He was a faithful man. See, Moses was a great lawgiver. Moses was great at that, right? Joshua was a great general. He was great at that. David was a great king. He was great at that. Isaiah was a great prophet. He was great at that. But you know what's great about Abraham? He had faith in the God who came and gave him a promise. And Abraham said, I believe it. That's, that's just really encouraging to me because, believe me, I will never be any great general. <laughs> I, like, right, I just, right, I just, there's certain things that I look and I'm like, I'm not that. I'm not Moses. I'm not, right, but, but you look at Abraham and what's counted to him as righteousness is he believed God about what God said he would do in his life. He believed God about who he said he was. He believed God about really staggering promises. He believed it. And that gives me great encouragement. I hope it gives you great encouragement that we can follow in the ways of our father Abraham by believing these astounding promises that God brings. I mean, that's what he's done. Before they've had a child, God says, this is who you are. There's no question of what's to come. And Abraham, by God's grace, believed it. On the other hand, really, he did what Adam and Eve didn't. They didn't believe God. And so they didn't give themselves to following in God's ways. They went their own route, and it was devastating. 
But here God comes along to an ordinary man and says, I'm going to do extraordinary things to you. And what was extraordinary about Abraham was he believed that God would do the extraordinary. And it's trusting God's work, not ours. It's trusting God's word, not ours. And I'll be honest with you, I've always struggled with this, and I continue to struggle with this. As a kid, I was obsessed with sports. I played hockey in the winter. I played baseball in the spring. Um, then I got to the age where uh, in hockey they had rep teams, which is like the all-stars of every age group. I was never on those teams. Um, and then uh, what I realized is that on my house teams, I was like marginally good. And I was like, forget this. I'm out. Like, I, and so I just stopped playing hockey just around the time I started going to high school. I'm like, I'm not great at this. And, and, I, and then uh, I made the grade 8 basketball team at high school. And then I didn't make the grade nine team in high school. Once again, devastated. What? What am I going to do? What's my thing? And so I just, I, I just really got into music and obsessed with music and played in a band. And people were like, oh, that sounds pretty good. That's cool. But then I looked around and people were making better music. And I was like, is this my thing? Is this my niche? Right? Like, you start to just want to wrap what you do, trying to discover what you're super good at wrap your identity in it. Well, look, this doesn't leave you unless it gets righted. So here I come into ministry and I feel like God's leading me there and I, I feel like God has me here. All of those things, I count it a privilege and I love to pastor here at Central. Believe me. But it gets tricky when you start to talk identity and you wrap it in what you do. So here I am as this pastor and I get up to preach and this is one of my primary tasks here is preaching God's word. So the temptation when I wrap identity, work, in who I am is that when I preach well or you know, there's some sort of good feedback or people seem to have, like God is working really great life change in people due to what God is saying in his word uh, far, far down the line through the preaching that I get to participate in, all of that. I oh, praise God and I soar. And life is good and the Shant's household is full of joy. <laughs> and then I preach a sermon that seems to, and it's hard to tell sometimes with Mennonites, seems to fall flat. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll throw the Dutch in there too. Don't count yourselves out. You're in there too. Pentecostals, where are you? There, yeah. Essentially, I can just tell if I've done well or not by looking at Josh's reaction. No, Look to the Pentecostal guy. You know where you're at. No, no, okay. But here's the thing, literally, if, if I work identity, and this is always a challenge, if I work identity into what I do, when the sermon goes well, I soar. But when it seems to fall flat, or you get that email that wants to cut it a little bit, you're devastated. And the Sean's household isn't as pleasant as <laughs> those coming to, why? And I just have to keep bringing it back. Oh, yeah, I'm actually putting my identity in what I do. But see, we can learn from Abraham in this. God says, this is who you are. It has nothing to do with what you're going to do for me. It has to do with what I have promised you, how I will bless you, and the work I will do in your life. And that is astounding. So I wonder sometimes, do we have fig leaves? Are we doing just really poor work, just trying to give ourselves an identity? What am I good at? What can I make with my hands? When God is actually declaring, I make you who you are. We were, um, I was reading uh, something recently where it talked about us 
We're not human doings, we're human beings. And in being human beings, not human doings, we need to understand that we are actually created for something and God actually declares something about us and we're actually just to live in light of that. Sure, we work and we work hard, but our identity in Jesus informs what we do. So we have to work this out. See, the problem, like if you're like me and you have to keep coming back to this and relearning it for the hundredth time, is that oftentimes when we, we associate certain kind of work, like, the things we do, the tasks we give ourselves to, if you're in sales and you miss the target, oh, I'm terrible. Who am I as a person, right? Or if you identify your, yourself in your job and you lose your job, well, who are you now? Right? What happens if, if you're parenting, you're mothering? Is identity, like not just a good thing God gives, but identity wrapped in it and your kids grow up and leave the home and don't depend on you. What happens then? Who am I, we might ask? What happens when our job has been our life and we retire? Who am I if identity gets wrapped up in work? What if, what if really you identify yourself as a helper? I, I, just, I help people. And it, but it's not just something good that you do. You're the helper. And your identity is wrapped up in being the helper. What happens when you fall flat on your back and you need the help? And you don't even know who you are anymore. See, what God declared to Abraham is also what he declares to us. So where we get this wrong is we work to give ourselves identity. But where we can get it right, following the path of Abraham and looking to the wrong way that Adam and Eve dealt with it, getting it right is simply to believe God about who he says we are in Christ. Believing in a it being counted to us as righteousness that we simply believe God about who he says we are. So in doing some um, thumbing through the New Testament, looking at who God declares we are, some identity things, I just want to list off a bunch and we're just scratching the surface. These are things that are our identity, if you're a follower of Jesus, that are identity and we're not even talking about the stuff you do. We're not even touching on that. We just want to get it right. We want to get it right. We want to look that we are children of God. When you're a child of God, you're much like my sons. See, my sons are my sons regardless. When they do something that drives me crazy, I'm frustrated with them, but they're my sons. When they do something wonderful, when they say really, really sweet things to me and my heart melts, they're still my sons, just like they are when they drive me nuts my sons and we are declared through Christ becoming heirs with Christ our perfect elder brother Jesus we inherit that and we become heirs of promise we become children of God who inherit what he gives his kids and it's apart from our it's it, it's separated from our good days and our bad days when we've done it well and we've done it poorly it's simply separated from this child of God we're called See, we are justified and redeemed, Romans 3 tells us. We're justified. We're made right with God through Jesus. That's just who we are. And it's through the work of Jesus, not ours. So we don't even need to muddle those things up. We're redeemed and we're forgiven by the grace of Jesus. We're forgiven. We do things wrong. We get it wrong. And yet we, in Christ, are forgiven and redeemed. And our identity can be wrapped up in that. That's who we are because we understand whose we are. 
We're made alive together with Christ. We're accepted by Jesus. We're called a friend of Jesus in John 15, 15. We're set free in Christ. We're a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says. We become a member of Christ's body. He's the head. We get to be a part of the body. That's just who we are. We're part of the church. We're part of a family. That's who he is. That's what he does for us. We are gifted the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And through that, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. He works those in his kids, those he loves, those he's called, those who have turned to him in faith. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing. We're chosen, holy, and blameless before God by Christ's work. We're made complete in Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. We were dead in Christ. Now we're alive in Christ. And Philippians 3.20 calls us citizens of heaven. That's who you are. If, you're, if your life is given to Jesus, you have a citizenship in heaven for all eternity. This is not our homeland, God says about those who have an identity in Jesus. Our eternity with him is. See, just as Abraham was given a new identity that represented what God was doing through him, we're given a new identity in Jesus that represents what God has done and will do through us. So if you've given your life to Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you follow after him, this is an identity that will satisfy. This is an identity we can wrap our hearts around and we don't need to long for anything other than this identity in Christ and then we live in light of it. See, we, we still work, but when our identity is in Jesus, it's out of that identity that we can work in light of who we already are, and there's nothing that changes that. We don't have to work to try to define who we are. We don't have to give ourselves to labor to, or to certain things or to certain accomplishments that we have that make us better. No. We give our lives over to Jesus. He gives us a new identity, and they're found in him. And that's precisely what Abraham did, and it was counted to him as righteousness. See, one of the reasons Jesus came was to satisfy our longing for identity that could be only satisfied in Jesus. Second point, let's look at verse 5 again. Look at this. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God's making a promise through Abraham that he is, all, he is going to work through. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Hold on to that word offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you, and then look at verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Over and over again, he's using this word offspring, offspring. I will bless you, I'll make you into um, great nations, and I will give you offspring. This, is, this promise is for you and to your offspring. Over and over it goes. It's interesting, this is a continuation of the seed theme from last week we were talking about, about the offspring of the woman, this, this serpent judgment, but the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. So we were talking about all this seed stuff. It comes up here again in Genesis and then not again until uh, a, a, the promised seed of King David later in 2 Samuel. But we pick up this theme here and there's this offspring theme and there's significance about it. Look at what Galatians 3.16 says about offspring. It makes it really clear. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. There's that word again. And then Paul clarifies. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And um, this means that God made a promise to Abraham, really for lots of children, but there's something about one child that stands out, that one offspring, singular, who is Christ. Now, I tie this into Jesus being the source of the joy we all long for because Jesus had an exchange in John chapter 8 um, with some religious people, and there they were, and they, were, they, they mentioned in the conversation that Abraham is our father, they said. And Jesus began to question that, them on that. Um, I think it's like John 8, 31, short to the end of the chapter, there's this very interesting dialogue back and forth, and Jesus is saying, if you were children of Abraham... If he was your father, you would recognize me, you would believe my words, and you would do what Abraham did, which was believe about me. It's really fascinating. And then look what he says in John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus said, your father Abraham, he says in the midst, really concluding this dialogue, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. We're in Genesis chapter 17 here. And in Genesis chapter 17, God is making a promise to Abraham and his offspring. Galatians 3 is telling us primarily that offspring we're talking about, ultimately promise fulfilled in Jesus, that one particular offspring. There is an offspring to come who will bring remedy and rescue and salvation. The Messiah will come through you and this one will be so significant. And Abraham believed that. He had faith. And Jesus even declares, Abraham knew about my day and he rejoiced in it. He was glad. This word rejoiced is this like wholehearted word. Abraham was overjoyed. About what? About getting kids and land? Yes. But he rejoiced. He was overjoyed about Jesus' coming. Jesus' day. The coming of Jesus is what brought Abraham such joy. This is an amazing statement. Abraham was justified by faith in the promise of God. And that promise, ever since the beginning, was pointing to Jesus. Abraham longed for Jesus' day and was filled with joy and hope because of it. See, even then, Jesus was the source of all joy. And he remains the great source of all joy. So let me just kind of go on this track for a little bit. There's a really thick, weighty book called Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. I'm sure every Dutch person here has read it. (laughs) Maybe not. But in Religious Affections, I'll I'll paraphrase it, just update the language a little bit. Jonathan Edwards said, A hypocrite is one who uses God to get something else. That's what a hypocrite is in Jonathan Edwards' definition. A hypocrite is someone who uses God to get something else. What he's saying is, and the reason I tie it in here, is because Abraham wasn't using God to get stuff. Abraham got God. 
And he put his hope and his faith in him. Abraham got God. He wasn't just looking for God to give him stuff, give him a child that he longed for. No, that wasn't, an, that wasn't it. That wasn't enough. He, he, he got God, and that was his, his great source of joy was Jesus. And we're called to do the same. We're not just simply to want things from God. We're just supposed to be guilted to come here, to arrive, to think if I go through the right motions, if I do the right things, if I try right, get all this, he'll give me the desires of my heart. He'll answer my prayers for this, 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 and this. And yet what we discover as we carry on in the Christian life and we get to know God more and we look in the scriptures and discover more of who he is, we actually discover that our greatest satisfaction is not in the periphery stuff and the blessings he gives, though he gives those and he loves us and he supplies needs and he answers prayer. But what we discover as we walk more closely with God is that we just get more God. We get more of him. And it's astounding. And it changes us and it actually produces the most full wonderful joy in our lives. See, true joy is found in Jesus, and Abraham understood that. It wasn't what he could get from Jesus. It's not what we can get from Jesus. The greatest part is that we get Jesus. So look, last night, uh, our our boys are at their grandparents this weekend, which is sweet. Um, (laughs) I'm a tired person. Anyways, all right. It's really, really nice. But this is what we did with our spare evening is we wrapped all the Christmas presents to everyone in our extended family, to our boys, to everybody. All the presents were out. Emily likes to wrap the stocking gifts even, so it gets ridiculous. So uh, from, uh, from downstairs, all the wrapping paper, I started sorting out gift bags because we had like 150 of them and they were a big mess. So, like, it was just, that was our evening. But we have all these gifts we're wrapping and it's, 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 not, it's not my idea of a good time just wrap, like, one of the gifts was like this ukulele. It's not for our boys, so don't worry, you can tell them. Anyways, it's, it's just this box like for a ukulele, and it was like the most impossible thing to wrap. I was just like, just like, just wrap, it just was, it was disgusting. It was awful, it was terrible, it was a horrible exercise. I was trying to be patient, I was, I, we had Christmas music on, it was, I wasn't feeling the vibe. I was just, the tape, everything, it was awful, just trying to do this. But I was starting to think though, as my spirits were lifted, starting to think about really all these gifts and different people in our lives that they're going to, family members, people we love, and what, all this kind of stuff. And, and just thinking about these gifts and just thinking about there's something about Christmas, and especially as you get older, you're less driven by the gifts you get. Um, but there's this sense that I, I just had this real gratitude growing in my heart that's like, yeah, I'm going to get something from Emily for Christmas. But really the greatest part of it is spending Christmas with Emily. Right? Like, I'm going to get little drawings from my boys that I'll put in my office and will look horrific. But, you know, like, I'll do that. They're, they're nice gifts to me. And the, the, but I get my boys on Christmas. And I'm less concerned about the stuff. And isn't that so how it is? It's just what's really great is how we give the gifts and it's a way of saying I love you. We give them to people. But the greatest part is just gathering with those people and having that time and loving those people. It's the same with God. He gives good gifts to his children. He does. But at Christmas, it's a reminder of, oh, but Jesus is the great gift. Jesus himself is the great source of joy in the holiday. Jesus himself is the gift. See, Abraham was given land and family, yes, but most, most beautifully he was given God. He was grateful for what God had given him, but he rejoiced in Jesus. I want us to just 
dwell on that for a moment. See, we chase all kinds of things for joy. We're very creative with our sin. We're very creative with our sin. So we chase joy. So look, we want love and we'll chase love. But we, apart from Jesus, chase love in, in horrible ways, really broken ways. We chase love by just wanting acceptance from one particular person, right? You get married, you have your spouse, and you're wanting them to fulfill every ounce of what you want love to be and how you want to be loved, and you're looking to them to fulfill it all, but they can't, and so we're setting them up for failure, right? Or you distort it, and so you want love, and part of that works itself out in, in, in a relationship uh, sexually, and yet we distort that with pornography or affairs, right? We distort it. We're, look, we're chasing love, but we, just, we miss it. We miss it. We miss it, and we're called to just... Find the source of all joy. That love that we desire in our hearts can fully be satisfied in Jesus and then we can give ourselves to loving those around us. We can give ourselves to trying to right the unhealthiness and the distorted pieces and trying to um, have Jesus be the source of all joy and to live those out beautifully. We can do this with money. We can do this with power. We can do this with comfort. We can do this with acceptance, right? We can do it with all sorts of things is that we want these things to bring us joy. Like I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dumb thing, but it's, it's something that like literally I struggle with all the time is I got an iPad once. But the problem is, is I'm really excited about that iPad, but the very next year they make a better iPad. And so, look, if I'm chasing, like, the great electronic to, like, just satisfy me, bring me joy, sure, it brings me joy for a couple weeks until they're already starting to announce the next one. You're like, ah, it's, like, thinner. I don't know why that matters so much, but it's, like, slightly, slightly thinner. Like, to the millimeter, they're talking about how much thinner it is, and it's lighter. It's, like, it's not very heavy anyways, but it's a little bit lighter and thinner, and they just sell you. Like, that's what matters, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be better. It's the best one yet. Right? Like, they're pretty much going to be the size of paper. It's like, this is so amazing. Like, so, who cares? But we chase it because we want joy. And we're rooting it not in who we are. We're not rooting it in joy in Jesus, that he is the ultimate source of joy. We're just trying to find it in all these silly ways. We try and force it in all these kinds of ways. But when those things are our pursuit, when we try to satisfy the longings in our hearts with those things apart from Jesus, they're so second class. Love is second class when Jesus is not the source. Power, like any quest for things, is so second class when Jesus, we can have power through the Holy Spirit to do his work. Like comfort and acceptance and money and all these sorts of things that just they're second class unless Jesus is is the source of it and when he is the joy is supreme see Jesus himself is better than anything else you pursue and he is the source of the joy you long for I just want to tell you that this morning whether you know it or not whether you believe it or not Jesus is the source of the joy you long for. I guarantee it. He's the source of the joy you want. Is your heart unsatisfied? Is your heart longing for something to identify you, to, to, to bring you joy and happiness and wholeness and completeness? I, I assure you again at Christmas, like Abraham found his identity in Jesus and he looked forward with rejoicing that Jesus was coming. I just want to tell you, Apply those things to your life. Give those over to God this morning and you will find precisely what he found. An identity in him that satisfies. Joy in him 
that is the source of just heightening every other joy that comes around. Like Abraham, we can look at the coming of Jesus and rejoice. We can. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus. Thank you, God, that my acceptance from you in my life um, really has nothing to do with what I'm doing right now. Lord, my, ex- my acceptance from you is found in Jesus, and he says it and declares it, and those things are, and we live in light of it. Lord, for, for my friends here this morning, Lord, there is nothing we can do this week to earn more with God. The best thing we can do this week is rest in the promises of what he says, who he says we are. Let's not worry about what we do, but remind ourselves of whose we are. God, thank you that you bring the great, great joy. Thank you that at Christmas we can have great joy because you came. You broke into human history. You love us that much. You love us so much. And I thank you, God. May we find you to be this holiday season, this Christmas, our great source of joy. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.